0: Shall the wicked exult. They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner, and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble, until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage for justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, Your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with You? Those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my rock, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Word. We thank You and praise You for Your Spirit. We thank You, Lord, that by the power of Your Word and through the work of Your Spirit that You create and sustain and strengthen Your people. And so, Father, we pray now that as we turn to Your Word that You would do that good work. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, just a few moments ago when we prayed together, Jesse mentioned that this is September 11th, and we prayed for our nation and for those who may still be mourning the loss of loved ones from that day. On Wednesday, September 12th, 2001, the day after September 11th, US, the USA Today a newspaper reported, quote, It may have been the bloodiest day in U.S. history. Americans talked of a second Pearl Harbor, an act of war, but the comparisons faltered. This time it was civilians dying in the nation's political and financial centers, Not soldiers and sailors in a distant Pacific territory. This time the targets were not outdated battleships, but buildings familiar to every school child. End of quote. I know it's been some time now since the events of September 11th occurred, but if you're old enough, I'm sure that most of you remember where you were that day. I was in Louisville, Kentucky. I was working in the campus bookstore at the graduate school that I was attending. And I imagine most of us have our own stories about 9-11. Americans felt deeply the sorrow and the pain of that day. And you might remember that as a result of the events of that day, our nation began kind of this conversation. People had many questions and began to ask deep, reflective questions like, Is there a God? And if so, where was He when these things happened? And what about justice? Will the men who mercilessly and unexpectedly killed almost 3,000 people get away with it? You know, at some point in all of our lives, we will have to deal with these types of questions. It may be on a grand scale, like a 9 11 event. Or it may be on a smaller scale as we deal with various injustices in our own lives. For example, consider someone rams into your car. They don't have insurance, and so they take off and you're stuck with the bill. Or one of your parents abuses you while you're growing up. Or your spouse violates your marriage vows and walks out on you. Or your business partner empties the bank account and takes all your life savings. I've entitled our message this morning, The God of Vengeance and the Hope of His People. And what we see in Psalm 94 is that the psalmist assures us that we can have confident hope in the god of vengeance when injustice seems to prevail. We see in Psalm 94 that the psalmist assures us that we can have confident hope in the god of vengeance when justice injustice seems to prevail. And again, it could be grave injustices like 9/11 or it could be injustices that we suffer in our own lives that are not nearly as grave but very real. You might remember that we are in a section in the Psalms that are referred to, these Psalms here are referred to as kingship Psalms. It's Psalms 93 through 100, and some include Psalm 94 in the kingship Psalms, and some do not. Now, some do not include this Psalm in the kingship Psalms because there's no explicit reference to God as king, and there's no explicit reference to His reign. Having said that, though, Psalm 94 addresses one of the primary duties of a king, namely to judge and to ensure that justice prevails. So with that in mind, we're going to look at our psalm in six parts, and the psalm really breaks up uh, pretty nicely into six stanzas, so we're just going to walk through each one. So first of all, look there in verses 1 and 2, and we will consider this, a prayer for justice. A prayer for justice. So look there in verses 1 and 2. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. So we see here that the psalmist opens with a prayer. He is speaking directly to the Lord, to Yahweh. He says, O Lord... And then twice he refers to Yahweh as the God of vengeance. And then once he refers to Him as the judge of the earth. And notice what the psalmist's prayer is here. Notice his plea. He says in verse 1, shine forth. He says in verse 1 also, rise up. And then in verse 2 he says, repay. Repay to the proud what they deserve. Now in a moment we will consider further who the proud are. And what the proud have done. But just reading these first two verses here in Psalm 94, I think we should begin by asking the question, is it right for us to take vengeance on our enemies? When we are wronged, all of us are tempted to settle the score, to inflict the same pain on the other person that we ourselves have experienced. And is that right? And if not, then why does the psalmist pray, Repay the proud, O Lord? Some of you might be asking the question, Didn't Jesus teach us to love and to pray for our enemies? Well, the answer to this question, should we seek personal revenge, is clearly no. We should not seek personal revenge against our enemies. In fact, one author dealing with these issues makes a distinction between uh, personal revenge on the one hand and judicial retribution on the other. So, we can say that God has granted the government authority and responsibility to enact judicial retribution, We see this in a passage like Romans chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. The Apostle Paul says, for He, that is the ruler, governing authorities, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for He does not bear the sword in vain, for He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And the Scriptures teach us clearly as well that it is not our place to seek personal revenge. This principle is actually established in the Old Testament law. So in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, we read, You shall not take vengeance. That's actually the same word that's used here in Psalm 94 to speak of the God of vengeance. It says in Leviticus 19:18, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. Paul actually states this truth in Romans chapter 12, verses 18 and 19. So the Apostle Paul says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance, that's the same word that's used in Psalm 94, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So, the government is responsible for judicial retribution. However, if they fail to properly punish injustice, or if some offense is committed that is outside of their realm, say it's an offense that's not against the law, but it's still a personal maybe offense against us, then Paul says, we are to entrust ourselves to the Lord And the psalmist here in Psalm 94 makes the same point and says, we are to entrust ourselves to the judge of the earth. Now, this is critical, isn't it? Because when we are wronged, legitimately wronged, our judgment is often clouded. Our judgment is clouded by our own personal interest. And we have to confess that it's difficult for us to see things in those moments clearly. And so what we see in Scripture is that as a result of that, we are to rely on an objective third party like governing authorities, and we are to entrust ourselves to God who knows all things and always does what is right. So, should we seek personal revenge? No. But should we pray for justice? Yes. The Bible teaches us that we can love our enemies and we can pray for justice at the same time. In fact, the Bible teaches us that in one sense, this is one of the ways that we love our enemies. Instead of seeking personal revenge, we humble ourselves before the Lord and we say, Lord, I'm offended. I'm hurt. I can't see things as clearly as I'd like. I don't know all the facts, and I don't know fully the mind and the heart and the intentions of all who are involved. I recognize that my standards of love and grace and righteousness and justice are not perfect, and therefore I entrust myself to You, God. I entrust myself to the judge of the earth, and I trust Your judgment because your justice and your mercy are perfect so the psalmist begins here in psalm 94 not by seeking to take personal revenge but by looking to the judge of the earth and crying out for justice secondly we see a wicked people so first a prayer for justice second a wicked people Look there in verses 3 through 7. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. So here the psalmist is continuing his prayer to the Lord. He began praying in verse 1. He's still speaking to the Lord and praying to Him in these verses. And here the psalmist reveals the great uh, crime of the proud, of the wicked. He says here in these verses that the proud and the wicked attack the defenseless. In fact, the text says that that the uh, wicked, in verse 5, they crush and afflict the defenseless. And in verse 6, they kill and they murder. So these are grave injustices, crimes of the most serious of nature. And who are the defenseless in verse 6? The defenseless are the widow, the immigrant, and the orphan. The widow because she has no husband to protect her, especially in this ancient society. The immigrant because often The immigrant has no family or no laws to defend them. The orphan, because the orphan has no parents to provide for them. And so the proud and the wicked take advantage of the weak. And notice here as well in our text that not only are these folks who are being taken advantage of, not only are they defenseless, not only are they weak, but they are members of God's people. You see it there in verse 5. They are your people. They are your heritage. In other words, the people of God, in particular, the, those among the people of God who are defenseless and who are weak are being oppressed. But that's not all. We also note in our text here that not only are the defenseless and the weak members of the people of God, it seems from our text that those who are oppressing the defenseless and the weak claim to be a part of the people of God. This is what it seems most scholars have concluded from this psalm. Because we see here in the psalm that the psalmist is speaking about those who exercise authority over God's people. The psalmist is speaking of the leaders of God's people. And it's because of their close proximity to God's people that they are able to oppress the weak and the defenseless, that they're able to oppress the widow and the immigrant and the orphan. It's also as a result of their close proximity to the people that they are able to manipulate the law to their advantage and to the disadvantage of the weak. Look down further in verses 20 and 21, and the psalmist says, Can the wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute, that is those who frame injustice by the law, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. So these are folks that are close enough to the people of God that they are able to enter into political alliances and use the legislative process, the judicial system, to frame laws in such a way... That they work for their advantage and to the disadvantage of the weak. And you might say to yourself, well, how could this be? I mean, how is it that those who claim to be God's people, we could say it this way, how is it that those who claim to be Christians could oppress God's people, could oppress other professing Christians? One of the examples I gave earlier... Just consider, what if the man who rammed into your car and drove off and left you with the bill is a member of a local church down the street? It's not too hard to imagine, is it? Or what if the parent who consistently abused you without ever expressing any remorse took you to church every Sunday morning? Or what if the spouse who walked out on you is a deacon in the church? Or, and this gets more directly to our text in Psalm 94, what if an entire culture and society that claims to be rooted in Judeo-Christian values oppresses its own people? I was especially struck by this reality when I read the narrative in life of Frederick Douglass over the summer. It's a powerful book, and I would highly recommend it. In the 1800s, Douglass was a slave in Maryland, and eventually he escaped. He taught himself to read and to write, and he became a powerful voice in the abolition movement. And one of Douglass' most convincing arguments against slavery was the assertion that slavery stood in conflict with the religious claims of so many Christians in America. Let me just read one passage from his book. He writes, I assert most unhesitatingly that the religion of the South is a mere covering for the most horrid crimes, a justifier of the most appalling barbarity a sanctifier of the most hateful frauds, and a dark shelter under which is the darkest, foulest, grossest, and most infernal deeds of slaveholders, in which they find the strongest protection. Were I to be again reduced to the chains of slavery, next to that enslavement, I should regard being the slave of a religious master, the greatest calamity that would befall me. For of all slaveholders with whom I have ever met, religious slaveholders are the worst. I have ever found them the meanest and the basest, the most cruel and cowardly of all others. And then he makes reference to one man in particular who was actually a pastor in one of the communities in which he lived. He says, Reverend Daniel Whedon owned, among others, a woman slave whose name I have forgotten. This woman's back for weeks was kept literally raw, made so by the lash of this merciless religious wretch. He used to hire hands, and his maxim was, behave well or behave ill, it is the duty of a master occasionally to whip a slave, to remind him of his master's authority. Such was his theory, and such his practice." We see from this example, and we could point to many, many other examples throughout the history of the world and all around the world of examples where there are folks who profess to be among the people of God who tragically oppress other people and even oppress genuine Christians. So, a prayer for justice, a wicked people, and then third, reasoning with a fool reasoning with a fool. Look there in verses 8 through 11. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath." So, the psalmist in verses 1 through 7 has been directing his prayer to the Lord, and now you notice here in these verses, in verse 8 through 11, the psalmist now turns from addressing the Lord directly, and now he speaks to the wicked. You see in verse 7 that the psalmist observes, they, that is the wicked, say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. And so, here's the psalmist answer to that in verse 8. Understand, O dullest of peoples, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? In other words, what the psalmist is doing here is he's turning now to the wicked and he's challenging them. He's challenging the fool. He says, is it not the height of folly that you convince yourself that you can hide your actions from the omniscient, all-knowing God? Is it not the height of folly to think that you can shield your words from the creator of the universe who is present everywhere? Is it not the height of folly to to convince yourself that you can escape the discipline of God who is the perfect judge of the earth? And without remorse and without repentance, you can oppress the people of God and say, God will not see, God will not hear, God will not know. The psalmist says here that although the fool may be exceptionally intelligent, although the wicked may be exceptionally intelligent, he may get a perfect score on his SAT, the psalmist declares that spiritually and morally he is dull. He is a fool. When it comes to spiritual and moral reality, we might say the fool is not the sharpest Knife in the drawer, because he's convinced himself that he can recklessly sin with immunity and get away with it. And one of the things that's interesting here is that the word that is used here, dullest, in verse 8, understand, O dullest of the people, that word is a word that we have encountered already in our study in the Psalms. So in Psalm 92, this was the first psalm that we looked at in this series that we're currently in. It's a song for the Sabbath. And in Psalm 92, verses 6 and 7, we read these words, the stupid, that's the same word, the man that is dull, the man that is a fool, this is what he cannot know. The fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever." And we learn from Psalm 92 that one of the reasons why we gather together on Sunday mornings for worship is to save us from our spiritual stupidity, to stave us from our moral foolishness. In part, we gather together to remind ourselves that although at times it may seem that the wicked has all the fun, that they have all the perks, that they have it made, it's all smoke and mirrors. Because when we gather together, we are reminded that God reigns on high and that if they do not repent, they will be doomed. They will be scattered and they will perish. But as the psalmist tells us in Psalm 92, the righteous will be planted and they will flourish and they will know life and they will bear fruit. So we see the same word here dullest, the fool. We see it in Psalm 92. We also see it in Psalm 73, which we went back to when we were studying Psalm 92. It's a song of Asaph. And you might remember that Asaph was the psalmist who says that his foot almost slipped when he was envious of the wicked. And he said amidst this disillusionment, when he was envious of the wicked, that he became like a beast. That's the same word. It's ba'ar in Hebrew. He became like a fool. He was dull before the Lord. And how was he rescued? Psalm 73 tells us that Asaph went to the house of the Lord. And when he was in the house of the Lord and worshiping the Lord, he was reminded of the end of the wicked. And he renewed his hope in God and commitment to God. And now in Psalm 94 we see this same theme. The psalmist cries out to the Lord. And what is his cry? Lord, shine forth. Rise up. Repay. And why does the psalmist pray this? Because the dullest, same word, the ba'ar, the fool, he thinks he can sin without consequence. He thinks he can oppress God's people. He thinks he can crush and afflict and murder the weak and the defenseless and God won't hear and God won't see and God won't act. Do you see that the psalms are full of psalms like this? And why? Because we are all at various times tempted to think this way. Let me say it this way. We are all tempted at various times to be spiritually and morally stupid. To be a beast. To be dull. And there's a couple of different ways we can do this. On the one hand, we can convince ourselves that we can sin with immunity and without consequence, and God won't see, and God won't hear, and God won't know. And on the other hand, we can fall into this temptation when we despair That when we're walking by faith and we're walking in obedience to God, it doesn't matter. Because God is indifferent to the righteous and the unrighteous. Because God makes no distinction between the two. Because there's no payoff or reward for obedience to God. Because God doesn't really reward those who earnestly seek Him. And in those moments, we're tempted to join in with the wicked. But the psalmist says to us here, don't be a fool. God sees, God hears, God knows, the judge of the earth will do what is right. Therefore, do not join the wicked and be assured that God will honor the righteous. So, a prayer for justice, a wicked people reasoning with a fool, and then fourth, Reassuring the righteous. Reassuring the righteous. Look there in verses 12-15. through Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake His people. He will not abandon His heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. So we see here that The psalmist speaks to the Lord in these verses, and then he speaks to us, his readers, the audience. And the psalmist declares that the righteous are blessed. Now, in verse 12, when he says that the righteous are blessed, it reminds us of the very first psalm in the psalter. So, Psalm 1 begins, blessed is the man. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And so what we see in Psalm 1 is that the man in Psalm 1 avoids evil, and he delights in God's word, and therefore he is identified as blessed. But in Psalm 94, it's different. What we see in Psalm 94 is that it's not what the man does that results in him being identified as blessed, but rather it is what the Lord does for him or to him that results in him being blessed. And what is that the Lord does for him and to him? In verse 12 we read, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law." So the blessed man is the one that the Lord disciplines. The blessed man is the one whom the Lord teaches from His Word. Now, of course, we don't naturally consider discipline to be a blessing, but the Bible consistently extols the benefits of discipline. So in Proverbs chapter twelve, verse one, we read, Whoever discipline, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. It's the same word, Baar. He's a fool. Or in Hebrews chapter twelve, verse seven and eleven, the author of Hebrews says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And if you notice in our text here, in verse 12, it speaks of of the man, the blessed man being disciplined, and then later on in verses 14 and 15, it speaks of his people and his heritage and the righteous and the upright in heart. So here in Psalm 94, we can deduce that this is who is being disciplined, right? Right? The Lord disciplines His people. The Lord disciplines His heritage. The Lord disciplines the righteous. The Lord disciplines the upright in heart. And this discipline may be the Lord's response to our sin. It may be His loving correction in response to our sin. Or it may not be in response to our sin at all. It may simply be that the Lord is disciplining us to train us, to teach us, like like a football coach might impart discipline to his team, not because necessarily they've done anything wrong, but through training and discipline, they will be prepared for the game. Either way, the trials and the hardships and the difficulties that God places in our lives are placed in our lives to cause us to turn and to rely upon God. And this is what God does for the righteous. This is in part how he chooses to bless the righteous, Because if the righteous were not humbled and taught to rely upon God, they would go the way of the wicked and the way of the fool. Last week in my Bible reading, I was reading about the life of David. And we can estimate that David was around 15, 16 years old when Samuel anointed him to be king. We don't know his exact age, but somewhere around that time frame. But David didn't actually become king until he was 30 years old. And in that interim period, about 15 years of his life, David was chased and harassed constantly by King Saul. And then when David becomes king, when he's 30 years old, he's only made king of Judah It's not until seven years later, when he's 37 years old, that he becomes king of Israel and unites the two kingdoms under his reign. And in those years, David is falsely accused. He's chased. He's harassed. He's mistreated. And why? Because God is preparing David to lead. He's preparing David to be a king who will honor him and give him glory. It reminds us of the Lord Jesus Himself. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, we read, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, through discipline. So the Lord blesses the righteous man by working discipline into his life, loving discipline. In addition, the Lord blesses the righteous man because he teaches him his law. So when the Lord chooses to bless us, the Lord answers a prayer like this. This is a prayer from Psalm 119. It's verses 33 through 36. It would be a wonderful prayer for you to pray for yourself. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. And I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments for I delight in them. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. If the Lord answers that prayer for you, you are blessed. That's what the Lord does for the righteous man. He works discipline into his life and he teaches him his law so that he opens his mind and his heart to love his word. And the two things are not unrelated, discipline and God's word. In fact, in Psalm 119 verse 67, the psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, before I was disciplined, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You see, it's the Lord's discipline that drives us to His Word. And it's in His Word that God reveals Himself to us, and we meet God. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, stated it this way, quote, I want you to know how to study theology, or we could say how to study the Bible. I want you to know how to study the Bible in the right way. I have practiced this method myself. The method of which I am speaking is the one which the Holy King David teaches in Psalm 119. Here you will find three rules. They are frequently proposed throughout the psalm and run thus. Prayer, meditation, trial. That's how you study the Bible. That's how you become a theologian. Prayer, meditation on the Word, and trial. Or discipline. This is the way the Lord blesses His people. Fifth, a personal testimony. A personal testimony. Look there in verses 16 through 19. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have soon lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. So, in these verses, the psalmist now gives a personal testimony of God's faithfulness in his life. And in doing so, he speaks to us as readers first, and then he speaks to the Lord as well. So, in verse 16, notice that the psalmist feels desperate and he feels alone. He says, Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoers? And he's speaking of the wicked that he's already described earlier in the psalm who want to oppress the weak and the defenseless. And the psalmist here says that he feels like he has no allies. There's no one that comes to his defense. There's no one who will protect him. But then in verse 17 he declares, If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have lived in a land of silence. And in verse 18 he now speaks directly to the Lord and he says... Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. I read these verses here. It reminds me actually of a passage that I was uh, responsible to preach when I was a very young preacher, one of the first passages I ever preached. It's 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 and 18, or 16 through 18. And in these verses, the Apostle Paul is on trial for his life. He's an older man at this point and he has been falsely accused by the religious leaders of his day and he is in danger of becoming a casualty of the corrupt roman judicial system he's on trial for his life and in second timothy chapter 4 verse 16 and 18 this is what the this is what the apostle paul writes at my first defense no one came to stand by me but all deserted me May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through the message, so that the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now think about the Apostle Paul. Think about all the ministry partners that he had throughout the years. Think about all the people he had ministered to. Think about all the churches that he had partnered with. And here he is at the end of his life. He's on trial for his life. And he says, no one came to my defense. All deserted me. But the Lord stood by my side. And the Lord delivered me from the lion's mouth. Oh, my friends, what gets us through times like this? What gets us through times like this? Psalm 94, when the psalmist says he feels alone, he feels abandoned. When the wicked are prevailing. What gets us through times like the Apostle Paul, he's at the end of his life, he's on trial for his life. He says, no one came to stand by my defense. What gets us through, at least in part, is God's Word. Look there in verse 19. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations, your promises, we could say, they cheer my soul. And notice how this relates to what we've just looked at in the prior verses. God disciplines the blessed man, and God teaches the blessed man out of his word. And so. When the blessed man, when the righteous man feels isolated and the wicked are prevailing, how does the blessed man endure? He endures through the consolations, through the truths, through the promises of God's Word. And as he relies on God's Word, which God has taught him through discipline, he is sustained, he is preserved, and he is held up. Sixth and finally, Personal confidence in God's justice. Personal confidence in God's justice. Look there in verses 20 to 23. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God... Will wipe them out. So in these final verses, the psalmist speaks to the Lord, and then he speaks to us, his readers. And he reminds us here in these verses who the wicked are. So earlier, he's told us that they oppress the widow and the immigrant and the orphan. But now, according to verses twenty-one and twenty, uh, 20 and twenty-one, we see, as I had noted earlier, that they pervert the law by entering into political alliances and oppressing the righteous. But as we read these verses here, consider what the psalmist is describing in these verses. Is this not the experience of the Lord Jesus Himself? The religious leaders of Jesus' day and the political leaders of His day, what did they do? You see it there in the text in Psalm 94. They band together and they condemned the innocent to death. This is what happened when the Lord Jesus went to the cross. When He died on the cross, He was dying in order to bear the punishment for our sins. So that if we turn from our sins and trust in Him, we might be forgiven and have eternal life. And so the Lord Jesus on the cross was willing to suffer the gravest of all injustices in order that we might be saved and forgiven. And this is the reason why Jesus, our great high priest, can sympathize with us when we suffer as a result of the unjust actions of others. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And notice as the psalmist considers the wicked actions of Those who are in authority, he asks the question, can the wicked rulers be allied with you, O Lord? Sometimes it might even seem the wicked are prevailing. They seem to be in charge. Surely it's the Lord who is blessing them. But the psalmist realizes, of course, the answer is no. God cannot and will not ally with the wicked And therefore he puts his hope and his trust and his confidence in God. Look at verse 22. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. And then he concludes with this confidence. He will wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. And so the psalm begins with a a it begins, I could say it this way it begins in desperation with a plea, with a prayer for justice. And it ends with assurance. It ends with confidence that God will finally enact his justice for which the psalmist so desperately longs. So that's Psalm 94. Now, as we close this morning, you might be wondering, what does this have to do with enjoying the gospel? Does it have anything to do with enjoying the gospel? Well, actually, I think it does. I believe Psalm 94, and many other psalms as well, but Psalm 94 in particular, teaches us that enjoying the gospel does not always... And when I, when I say enjoying the gospel, I mean delighting and hoping in God's grace and goodness. And enjoying the gospel, Psalm 94 teaches us, does not always look like happy, exuberant, cheerful, buoyant praise. Many times it does, right? And we can thank God for that. But we also have to ask the question... What does it look like to enjoy the gospel? What does it look like to hope in God's goodness and grace when calamity strikes? When 19 terrorists target innocent civilians and indiscriminately kill almost 3,000 people? What does it look like to enjoy the gospel when the quote-unquote people of God brutally enslave an entire people, many who are genuine Christians? What does it look like to enjoy the gospel when someone wrongly injures us or steals our property? What does it look like to enjoy the gospel and hope in God's goodness and in His grace when a loved one walks out on us? Well, this is what it looks like. It looks a lot like Psalm 94, it looks like not relying on ourselves but turning to God in desperation and brokenness and saying, Lord, even now You are my only hope. It looks like not taking vengeance into our own hands, but trusting the Lord who is perfectly just and merciful. It looks like rejecting the lie that God doesn't care or He doesn't hear or see or know and with a broken heart confidently resting in and rejoicing in the god of vengeance the judge of the earth our help our god our stronghold the rock of our refuge the psalmist in psalm 94 is teaching us what it means to enjoy god to hope in god to delight in god even when our hearts are broken and we face the gravest of calamities. May we look to Him and may we trust Him as the psalmist teaches us to do so here. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for Your Word and Lord, we thank You that in the Scriptures You speak to us about The greatest joys in life. And Lord, You also speak to us about the deepest sorrows and injustices in life. And You teach us, Lord, through Your Word, how to know You and experience You and trust You in both extremes and situations. Lord, we do pray that You would take Your Word now and apply it to our hearts. Lord, whatever difficulties or trials or hardships we might be facing this morning, help us, Lord, to appropriately apply this Word to our lives and to look to You in faith. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.